Hello, and welcome to Burbriety, the podcast about sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men, women, and the men and women who love them. I'm your host, Derek Bolin. Let's brober up. Welcome to episode seven of Brobriety, the podcast about sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men, women, and the men and women who love them. My name is Derek Bolin, and today we are joined by Graham Duffy. I had the pleasure of meeting Graham on another podcast that we interviewed for last week about the fear of alcohol. And I learned about Graham. He's recently celebrated 19 years of continuous sobriety. Over the better part of the last two decades, Graham has committed much of his time to learning about substance misuse and how to help others to live a life free of addiction and addictive behaviors. Graham, it's such a pleasure to get you on the show and and get to know you better, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Derek. It's just like in in the great tradition of podcasters, meeting on podcasts, interviewing podcasters. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the podcast, what's the snake that, that eats its own tail. That's the, that's basically the 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 podcasting world. Yeah. 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 Um, It's great to have you on here. I'm going to start with our standard question. It is intentionally broad and intentionally vague, but I would like to know who is Graham Duffy? Ah, that's a great question. It's a great question. And it's a question that the answer is, is in flux. I think that leading up to before the pandemic started, my my answer was always what I did for a living. So it was it was not really who is Graham Duffy. It was like well, what does Graham Duffy do? And my standard answer would be you know Graham's you know I, I work as an actor, I work as a comedian, I work as a teacher and a corporate trainer. Um, you know these are these are the things that I do. But then the pandemic hit, and during that time. I, that kind of stuff fell to the wayside due to the fact that people can't gather, et cetera, et cetera. And so the last 10 months to a year has really been about like, really the answer to your question, which is who is Graham Duffy? And as I look at that, it's like, who am I? Well, I'm a a 46 year old dude uh, who, you know, is married. I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a member of multiple communities. And I'm just sort of a person walking through this life who's trying to figure it out haphazardly as I, you know, stumble along the way. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's who I am. I'm a, a multifaceted person. And I'm different on any given day. And now that I don't have the identity of necessarily my job title, I'm actually sitting in and have been for the last number of months with who I am. I love that. And I do love that answer. And I love that we have asked that, you know, this is our seventh episode. We've asked that question every episode and not Mm -hmm. a single person has chosen to identify themselves by their job yet. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you meet people out in public or out in the wild and you have that conversation with them, that that's almost like, well, I I say when you meet people in Mm -hmm. public, you know, when we can do that again, um, it's almost invariably like, what do you do for a living? And I will put you in a, in a box based on that. Yeah. 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 Oh, you're an accountant. Okay. Got it. You know, like, <laughs> like you put up polls for BC hydro. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know who you are. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, mm, you? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's been great for me though, because I did, you know, I worked as an actor uh, for so long and, and actors, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the community, but they often identify with their careers, you know, uh, work becomes worth. And uh, you know, when that, when that was, taken away by a global pandemic. It was like, well, well, what are you now? 
Which it it strikes me as extra interesting that a profession that exclusively spends their time playing other people would identify as that. Like there's, is there Mm -hmm. almost like a, an identity crisis or complex that comes from identifying as an actor who plays multiple roles? Maybe. Yeah. And I think it's a, well, yeah, that's, there's that. And there's also the, um, you know, that the, uh, the nature of the work is that you are different, uh, you know, weekly, you know, you audition four or five times a week and you're playing four or five different characters and then you're going to book whatever you're going to book. And then you walk in and you become that character. Yeah. And you become very good at it. Yeah. Especially after a couple of decades of doing it, you know, you're used to it. You know, you, the thrill of not having to be the same person every day is, uh, is quite appealing. Yeah. Maybe there's a, a moral of the story. We, we can get more into that yeah, later. I know. Um, I know. I know. I've, I've looked deep into it over the years. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. I can imagine we're going to we're going to hear about that. Um, But on this podcast, uh, because this is invariably a podcast for men. um, And what we're trying to do our mission with this is is to kind of redefine or at least define what masculinity means in this era, and take a look at at some of those lasting traditions or or beliefs around masculinity. Mm -hmm. But I would like to know what your earliest ideas of what a man was, what those were and where they came from. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm very lucky. I didn't have a dad who was, who, you know, forced masculinity upon me and, and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like be a man or any of that kind of stuff. He, but I do know that. So obviously my dad was probably my first archetype of what a man was. And I know that my dad worked and he, you know, he's retired now, but he worked blue collar work, you know, he was a, a boiler maker by trade, he built ships, um, you know, in, in, you know, this is the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, right? Like he built ships in predominantly male driven environments. And, you know, when he came home his you know, his clothes were dirty. And back when he was younger, he used to smoke cigarettes. And I remember like his like flannel shirts that smelled like cigarettes and welding. And, um, you know, he had a mustache. Uh, you know, he, there was like, you know, there was certain traits of, I guess what was, what, what I perceived as masculinity, or at least the separation between my father and my mother as a kid was that my dad worked hard, dangerous work and, you know, smelled like it and act like it, you know, and, um, you know, I don't, but the thing is, I don't believe that he ever pushed any kind of archetype on me with regards to that. Uh, that I remember anyway, I think a lot of that started to come in uh, my experience in elementary schools and stuff like that. What was that like? Like when you, if there wasn't this like really forced notion of what masculinity (laughs) was around your household, what did you experience once you went out into the wild? Well, one, yeah, going out into the wild is something else, but uh, it's interesting because I like it, it became very clear to me early on that I was not going to get away with overly masculine traits like I'm a small guy, like I'm five now I'm, I'm five, six or five, seven, 140 pounds. Like I'm not a big dude, never have been. So, you know, those times where I wanted to get lippy with another kid or whatever, and I, I inevitably got my ass kicked. I learned very quickly that like that world is not really for me, right. That <laughs> overly macho bravado punching kind of way. And as a result of that, there was like, you know, I didn't end up doing like, you know, the good old Canadian kid of hockey or like these like kind of like group masculine activities uh, with other kids or other men or, or boys. Um, 
but I did sort of like begin to learn that, you know, I mean, it was never really, you know, girls that were picking on me. It was guys that were picking on me. And as a result, I, not as a result, but I did move a lot as a kid. And so I got to experience that in Canada in multiple schools. I got to experience it in Scotland in multiple schools and then throughout and then back to Canada again throughout many schools from age seven to 16. I moved predominantly every two years or so. And so I got to see the same archetypes over and over again in these different schools. And there was really that sort of like separation of I wasn't necessarily masculine enough um, for other uh, groups, especially groups of guys. Did uh, you, did you want to be like, did you ever feel like there was something lacking from your life because of that? Yeah. I mean, it looked, it looked appealing to me to, you know, like to, you know, as a, as an outsider um, that I wanted to, you know, uh, be what I considered to be rough and tough, but it just wasn't going to happen. Um, but here's the thing though, as a result of that, uh, you know, I began to push heavily away from that. And that sort of like, uh, like whatever alpha male type uh, archetype was what I began to sort of despise, right? Like, and so, you know, I, I separated myself as I grew up and moved into major cities and more cosmopolitan life and like, you know, like that, that sort of thing and, and accepting um, uh, less of a, I don't know, it's hard to say, it sounds weird to say, but less of this like masculine stereotype type life and more of like a, I don't know, cosmopolitan elitist type life where I was like, I don't need that kind of vibe. And I actually, yeah, I really didn't like it. I don't like being around too much of that energy. And, um, and even over the years, a lot of the industries I've been drawn to have a lot of women working in them. Um, even my first few jobs in the restaurant business and stuff, all my bosses were women. Uh, everybody I worked with were women. And then in the film and television industry, a lot of the people in positions of power and authority in my sphere of the acting world were women, my agents, uh, casting directors, directors, producers, and stuff like that. So I, I kind of like, I, in thinking about coming onto your podcast and the masculinity component, I was like, God, I'm probably the worst person to talk to about this because <laughs> <laughs> like, it hasn't been my experience, right? Like my experience has actually been predominantly either mixed or heavily uh, um, uh, feminine or, or women have been influential in my life. I think that's almost better, right? Like mm-hmm. not, not objectively better, but we definitely see this, um, this, like, it's the same for me. I was raised by uh, a single mom. My parents got divorced when I was in my teens. I've mm-hmm. spent like the majority of my life surrounded by strong women or women authority figures. You know, mm-hmm. I work in marketing, which is a pretty woman dominated industry right now. I'm on a yeah. team, a marketing team of like 50 people. And I think uh, a good 80% of them are women. So it, it feels like growing up with that kind of attitude towards the traditional maybe masculine mores that that have been entrenched for so long almost gave people like you and I maybe a head start on on because now we're seeing this this collective societal push away from that in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and it feels like yeah maybe we had a leg up on on everyone else and distancing ourselves from it yeah yeah it looks like I mean and yeah yeah I, I, I truly believe that um there's no uh, learning curve right now for me, although there's always more to learn, but there's, yeah. you know, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. But you're starting here instead of having to, to ramp up to maybe where the rest of society is right now. Yeah, I mean, like real, and the thing is like, even like, even my dad has never been that way. And my dad like literally like welded ships together 
in the middle of a like a hull of a ship on a dry dock on Lake Ontario in the middle of winter with, you know, minus minus 40 an hour winds blowing at him in a male dominated industry. Um, and he was never like that. So it's it, like, and, he, and you know, and you know, we, we kind of, you know, it's, it's popular to trash boomers or whatever. And my dad's a boomer, you know, like, and the thing is like, I was like, well, I mean, he's never really been that way. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sure when he was younger, not perfect, believe me, but like at the same time, it was like, I've never also heard him say, anything disparagingly about change in the workplace, you know, or, or that type of thing. Right. But he was also in a male dominated industry where it didn't really affect him matter so much. Yeah. yeah. I do want to say as an aside that, that without a doubt, I think that's the manliest profession I've ever heard of on, on this show. It's unreal. It's unreal. And the thing is like the ships that he built, um, some of them still, you know, traveled the earth you know, providing goods and services throughout the earth, you know, like, uh, like grain over to Europe and then, you know, different things coming back and forth and stuff. It's like, it's like, wow, that's a pretty cool legacy for uh, somebody who will be um, nameless in the annals of history. You know, it's like, wow, you actually probably provided, you know, decades worth of food for certain countries, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Very cool. So, Main reason we brought you on the show and talking to you on the Fear of Alcohol podcast, I learned a little bit more about your sober story. You recently celebrated 19 years of continuous sobriety. Huge congrats for that. Thank you. Um, That's a really impressive accomplishment. I just celebrated five and I feel like that's a lifetime. And like huge. my goal when I first stop drinking. And I'm going to assume it was the same for you. You know, at first you count the days and then you Mm -hmm. count the weeks and then you count the months and then you count the years. And my goal was always to just get to a point where I stopped counting. And it it was like, you know, I've just, I've spent some time sober and and that's it. Can you maybe share your story with us and, and maybe talk about what brought you to drinking in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, congratulations. Uh, that's great. And I, I, I do, I do know, I, I always wanted to get to that point too, where I wasn't counting necessarily, but there is always, as soon as December rolls around, there's a, you know, cause my sobriety dates January 6th. There's a, there's a moment that clicks in where I remember, you know, and it's not to say I forget throughout the year or whatever, but I do remember. And I, do, I still don't stop counting. I don't know why I'm not counting days, but I still, I, if, if everything in my life is completely, you know, falling down the, you know, the wayside or whatever, I know that on January 6th, I will be one more year sober, you know, so it, it still means a lot, you know, to yeah. me. Um, but my story, yeah. And my story is, you know, I, I spoke a little bit about my family. We moved a lot because my dad was a shipbuilder. And so, you know, and then we also spoke about being put out into the wild. And, and here's the thing, everything I'm about to say is either like historical or, I have learned through the power of hindsight. I did not know any of this while I was in it, you know? So I look back now and, and I look back and we moved a bunch and I don't blame my parents for that. I, I think I did at some point, but now I don't. I, I understand that they were just trying to live life. But so I think what that happened was the first time I got, you know, I was raised by this wonderful family and I was told I was wonderful and funny and unique and interesting. And then I was put into the kindergarten room or wherever it was. And I, and I started to be told that I had four eyes or that I was too short or skinny or that I had freckles. And I was began to be told these things. And I just don't think I had the fortitude to manage that much negativity 
so quickly. And then we began to move. And so what happens every time you move is you get brought in front of the class after class has already started. And they say, hey, everybody, this is this is the new kid. This is Graham. And at that point, they make a choice. They make, they're either going to make your life miserable or they're going to ignore you. And either one is going to hurt. Yeah. And that's just kind of what kids do, right? And so that happened enough times over the years where I just like became, I don't know, insecure or just I, I sought... I sought to have more or to have connection or whatever. So anyway, at 15 years old, we landed in Victoria, British Columbia. We That was it. That was the moving was over. And so I started to get a, a group of friends. And my group of friends did acid on the weekends. They smoked pot during school and they got drunk. And I was like, and I didn't even, I didn't even ask. Like I... I did like when they said, Hey, you want to, you want to go drink? I didn't, I didn't have any follow-up questions. I was like, yeah. Like, I didn't think like this is going to negatively impact my life for the next, uh, you know, decade plus or whatever. Right. And so anyway, I began to run with that crowd and then I had the acceptance and I had all those great things. That's well, the thing. Seeking. Like as a kid, you, the, probably the only thing you're thinking is I have friends. I have people I have who friends. want me to be around them, whatever they want to do, not out of the question. Yeah. Do you want to belong was yeah. the question. Absolutely. And at 15 years old, there's only one answer for yeah. me. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I was not a very self-actualized 15 year old. Right. <laughs> I don't know many that are. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah. And so, you know, then that set me off, you know, to, that was another 12 years of, um, you know, and, and drugs are a big part of my story, especially cocaine. I love that stuff. And, uh, and just like, and it, you know, it just kept me going and I got to, I could drink more, you know? So it was like everything that I needed. And, um, you know, and then it was just like, it was just like kind of, and don't get me wrong, I had a great time, you know, I had a lot of fun, but it was 12 years of wreckage. And, you know, what happened for me was, I think I began to, I began to feel the pain and I began to feel the pain of my actions. And I began to see the broken relationships, I began to see the un, unfulfilled hopes and dreams that I had as a person. And then I began to look in the mirror and I, I would promise myself, you're not going to drink today. Um, and then I would drink. And so then I couldn't even look myself in the eye in the mirror because I couldn't. And I'm t this is happening over the course of three, four years, right? Where I'm like really bottoming out, right? And my, my drug use is through the roof. But, I, but I, I kid you not, alcohol was my best friend. Alcohol was the, even, even if I found like the drug that everybody liked, you know, like I remember back in the days of ecstasy and stuff, people were like, oh, you shouldn't drink on ecstasy. And I was like, I don't understand what you mean. Like I drink and whatever else, you know? And so, um, so I hit, you know, there was overdoses that were a part of my story. There was embarrassing moments that were a part of my story. There were dangerous things. There were uh, incursions with law enforcement. There was losing jobs, getting jobs, losing relationships, getting relationships, losing apartments. There was all that, Right. But again, it, it really came down to how I felt emotionally. I had the worst emotional hangovers a person could have, I think. The headaches I could manage and the smell and everything I could manage, but it was how I felt about myself over and over and over again. And so, um, you know, on, I think it was like in the middle of summer 2001, I woke up out of a blackout. It was noon. 
Um, and I was like, okay, I, I got to sort this out. And so I go to the yellow page, not the yellow page, the white page is a phone book. And I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't know what else to do. And so I, I ran to this meeting at Christ Church Cathedral in Burrard, and it was everything you'd think it would be. It was like there was somebody sitting in a windowsill. There was like old guys. And there was like, like it looked like an after-school special, like of what an AA meeting would look Everyone like. Everyone has a styrofoam cup of coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah. The worst coffee. And, yeah. uh, and I was like, I was like, oh, God, I don't want to be here, right? <laughs> and I'm late and I smell like booze, right? And, uh, and, you know, little did I know that does not matter there. And I remember hearing people, the one thing I got out of that meeting was that there was a message of hope, that there were people out there who drank like me that didn't drink anymore and that seemed to be relatively happy and, and a little weird, but, but my kind of weird, you know, I was like, oh, okay, I can accept your weird. You know, if you can accept mine, I mean, who the hell, the hell am I to judge you? I just woke up at noon out of a blackout and I'm sitting here judging this like 60 year old dude who's been up since 5am living his life, you know? So I immediately left that meeting and I was like, oh man, this is going to work for me. So I drank again immediately. And I started and I, and I kept drinking and using for another six months. And then I hit a Just mess. because you knew that you had that out if you wanted it? Maybe, or maybe it was like, I'm not ready yet. I don't want this. Like it was, it was just so, it might've been a fight or flight instinct. I just, and, and I think part of it was I got the heat off of me. I think I had a girlfriend mad at me or something like that. So I went to a meeting It was like, oh yeah, look at me, I'm fixing it. And, and then that and, evaporated yeah. and yeah. Yeah. And then it got worse and worse. It was like watching a plane crash in slow motion. It was just like, like with flames coming out of the wings for like from August until January. And then uh, January 6, 2002, I woke up and I, you know, and, and 12 steps is part of my recovery process. But um, I woke up and I went to another meeting and, you know, it stuck is and that's how I got to sobriety. That's how I, I got there. And, and, you know, when I look back on it in hindsight, through the steps and stuff like that, and through my own personal work, it's that I had this lack of ease and comfort in my life that had been with me a long time. And alcohol solved that. And then alcohol stopped working as my solution. And I was still left with the problems. And the problems were getting worse because of the alcohol. And so the only logical step was abstaining from alcohol, which was like I had I had a beer fridge beside my bed. I had beer posters on my wall. I dressed as a beer for Halloween. Like, I mean, I like, you know, like I You were committed. I was committed. I was a bartender. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a bar manager, I ordered the booze, you know, like, so it's like my whole life was connected around it. And so, you know, at 27 years old, I just started trying to do this life differently one day at a time. You know, and now I, I can go on to the after, but I don't know what the next questions are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we're going to get into what, what do you yeah. think made it stick that time? You know, you said you had tried many times before. And by the way, I cannot overstate the significance of if you are a person who has spent the last however many years just failing yourself and letting yourself down because you keep trying to commit to do something and you cannot keep your word to yourself that can be so damaging to a person and the most important thing for even for me to see in that situation was here are other happy successful 
sober yeah. people like that that was a game changer for me and and just seeing people who i think it was more that they just had the ability to keep their word to themselves was like the, yeah. the single most meaningful thing i was tired i was tired of lying to myself man i was tired like i remember one time looking in the mirror and saying like never again and then the very next sentence out of my mouth to myself was yeah right what are you gonna do this is what you do and it was just debilitating and, you know, I've heard it, you know, I mean, AA should be called Metaphors Anonymous because it's like all we do all day long is just give metaphors <laughs> to people. Um, but, uh, you know, it was like somebody said, it's like, it's like uh, you're being held by a 1200 pound gorilla and it's not over until the gorilla says so. And at some point there, it feels like there was a door and I just, I got out, you know, while the gorilla was sleeping or something. There was just this one moment of clarity where I stepped through that door or was given enough of a hint through that meeting that it was possible. There was hope because that's, I mean, ultimately what, what they're peddling is like hope, man. Like, cause like, I mean, I think that's ultimately what everybody's peddling. Like as long as people still have hope, they can do it. You know, they can move on to that next thing and ambivalence. Like what we talked about, about oscillating between, I want to change and not changing. I want to change and not changing. Ambivalence is still a part of change. We used to call it in counseling, they used to call it resistance, but it's not. It's you can hold two thoughts at the same time. I can desperately want to quit drinking and absolutely love drinking at the same time. You know? Yeah. So it's a matter of how you push towards that next step, which is change. You know, 19 years, probably a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> what what has your sober journey looked like? Like what what was the let's start at the beginning and say like early sobriety. Yeah. You know, the the first year, what did that look like to you? How did you manage it? What was going on in your life? So uh, my first year was actually, you know, I look back on it now as like the gift. It was the gift. It didn't feel like it at the time, but you know, I I began to get my autonomy back. I began to, one day at a time, I would go to meetings. I would, you know, I made a small group of friends. We would drink coffee. We would, you know, I, I began to drink tea at home. Some of my outside of the program friends who still remained in my life and a lot left, you know, when I got sober, um, you know, they bring over tea and teapots and like they were trying to be encouraging and get me to like sort of make more positive choices. But, you know, in that first year I would, um, I would go to meetings, I would go to work. I, would, I kept my jobs, my bar jobs that should have been fired from. And I would watch episodes of Law & Order that would come on at midnight. And Jerry Orbach's character was a sober alcoholic. So it was clearly written by a sober alcoholic. And all the jargon was in there. So every now and then I would sit there watching the show and he would say like, one day at a time. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I knew if I was, in, if I was on my couch by midnight, watching Jerry Orbeck on Law and Order, I had made it one more day. And then I would wake up the next day and I would try again. And sometimes it was hour by hour and sometimes it was day by day, but I would get through it one day at a time sober. And the initial things were I began to get my pride back, not in a negative pride, but I began to feel empowered by my choice. And it felt uh, like you could trust yourself again, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I began to feel, I remember my landlord came on the bus one day that I was on and he, I see him get on and I immediately shrink down in my chair. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's the landlord. Right. And then I'm like, and the next thought in my mind was you've done nothing wrong. <laughs> 
I was like, oh yeah, I don't have to hide from authority. I'm not a bad person. You know, I, I bumped into somebody doing laundry one night on a Friday and she looked at me and she's like, oh, doing laundry on a Friday, huh? Aren't we a couple of losers? And I was like, I can't think of a better thing to be doing right now. Like, this is amazing. Like, is this what normal people do? This is awesome. Like, you know, cause everything was brand new for me. Right. And, um, but you know, I struggled too. I, I, I remember one time, like people would just hit me with these hard questions, you know, somebody's like, oh, you don't drink, huh? And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't drink. And he's like, what if you're on a beach with a hot chick, right? And I was like, huh, I was baffled, right? And so I call up this guy who was my sponsor at the time. I'm like, Andy, this guy just asked me a really good question. He's like, you know, like, what if you're on a beach with a hot girl? Are you not going to have a, a cold beer? And he's like, Graham, what, what can you see right now? I'm like, uh, buildings, the mountains. He's like, okay, what's the weather like? I'm like, uh, it's pouring rain. He's like, what month is it? I'm like, February. He's like, where are you? I'm in like Vancouver. And he's like, so it's safe to say you're not on a beach in Mexico right now, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, let's not worry about that just yet. And it was honestly blew my mind. I was like, you mean I don't have to live my life in a bunch of hypothetical situations for the rest of my life? I can actually just be where my feet are. You know, and so that was what early sobriety kind of looked like for me. And, you know, it just, it started to take hold, you know, and by month three, I held a three month chip and I had never experienced that before in my life, you know, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is working. And that, that's not, not to say I didn't have breakdown moments where I was just like, you know what, forget this, this is ridiculous. I was sitting in a meeting one day and the person was talking and I was like, eh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the meeting, but I had this panic attack and I I ran outside the meeting and I'm running down uh, Broadway uh, in Kitsilano and I'm like <sighs> running down the street, like sweating and stuff like that. And I don't know what I wanted. I just didn't want to be there anymore. But the thought in my mind was, you know what? Forget it, man. Call your friends, tell them it was a big joke. You didn't mean it. You didn't want to commit. You don't want to commit to this. Let's get a case of beer and forget about all of that stuff. And we'll joke about it later. Like, Hey, remember when you tried to get sober, you know? And what I did was I called this guy. This guy had given me his phone number and he goes, where are you? He said, come meet me. I'm like, okay. So I meet him. He just sat down and he just, he walked me through some questions about where my head was at and what I was desiring. And he showed me that I was like craving alcohol in my mind and that I was craving it and like that I needed to go back to it because I was feeling all of those feelings that drove me to it in the first place. And it was this, that love, that moment of love from a stranger to me and him telling me he had been there was enough for me. And he had a good life. You know, he was up from Los Angeles shooting a TV show. And I was like, this guy's got the life that I want. Right. And it gave me enough to get through the next 24, 48 hours, 72 hours. And I still talk about it now, 19 years later. Yeah. You know, it was just that kindness, you know, and then, and one other example is I, I was standing there at the bar and I'm closing the bar and I've got all the doors locked and it's just me. It's two o'clock in the morning. There's nobody else in there. The lights are out. And I'm standing in front of the Strongbow Cider Tap and I'm three months sober. And I'm like, hmm, you can do this right now if you want. You've proved your point, right? And then the only voice that I heard was, not today, maybe tomorrow. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a war of attrition at times. It's a one day at a time. You, the little tiny wars are what sort of like wins the battle. You really put yourself through the ringer if you were still like working at a bar in, in early sobriety is, is a trial by fire. I don't know that I could handle that. So oh, kudos yeah. to you. Well, I had guys in my life who were like, you know what, man, it's, never, it's not going anywhere. 
And right now you commodify it, you know? And so was it my dream for myself to be 27, 28, 20? I mean, I stayed in the restaurant business for a long time after that, you know, it was not my dream for me, but the universe had me where I needed to be. And yeah, it was tricky because it was also, <laughs> it was also the bar I drank in. <laughs> yeah, that would be a little triggering. I think. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole place, every nook and cranny, you know, every bathroom countertop, you know, it was, was a little escape for for me. So you make it through your first couple of years, like, at, at what point did you start believing? Okay, like, I've got this, or I identify as a sober person, or mm-hmm. I really feel like I have this under control, or maybe I can let my guard down a little. Or has that point even come? I think that point has come, but I think it was well after that. Uh, when it was probably a decade into it or whatever. But I do, I don't know how scientific this is, but I've heard it said that your emotional maturity is when, when alcohol stopped working for or started working for you, plus the amount of years that you have in abstinence and healthy abstinence, right? So if alcohol started working for me at 15, uh, you know, then by the time I was five years sober, I was basically 20. 20 years right? old. Yeah. And, I'm, I'm doing the math right now. And I'm like, yeah, that, that checks out. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I began to become comfortable in my sobriety, probably around year three or something like that, probably around year two, the newness was gone and we go about the work of daily living. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, it, it took a little while for it to take hold. It, it's, I wish it was an overnight thing, but it really, t- it took, it took me a few years to be honest with you. And then, you know, I began to take it for granted and I stopped doing the things that I was supposed to do with regards to my mental wellness, uh, with regards to how I interacted in my interpersonal relationships, how my finances were conducted. And, you know, by year nine, I got into a bit of a, a uh, crisis with regards to my life. And I hit another bottom. And, you know, this, this goes to, like, I know you and I have chatted before about the higher power concept in, in AA, right? And a lot of people struggle with that, because they have previous spiritual abuse that has happened or whatever. And I think for the first few years of my recovery, I kind of just adopted, not a Christian God, but basic concepts. I think, I, to be honest with you, my spiritual angle was more through Bob Marley and reggae music and Rastafarianism than it was through actual any other kind of thing. And I think what happened was I was using somebody else's concept of a higher power to get me through and it didn't work for me. And so one of my biggest resentments in around year eight or nine was, was God, you know, this thing that was supposed to be saving me. I was so mad at, like, I, I should have had a shirt that said, where's my shit. Like, cause that's all I could think was, where's my stuff? Where's my stuff? Where's, how come, how come my life's not perfect? Like, why are there 20, 20 year olds driving by me in Lamborghinis? Like why, you know, I've, I've, you know, carried water here. I, I did it all, you know, done the was, work. Yeah. I did the work. Where's my stuff. Right. And it was, it was, I was so ungrateful for the small things in life and for the big things that it wore on me and I hit rock bottom. And I remember I, I took a nine year cake and, and this friend of mine who's actually no longer with us is one of my, my close friends. And he looked at me and I had tried to help him so many times and, and he showed up to my cake and he had this bright, he had the bright eyes, you know, he had the bright sober eyes and he's like, Hey, how are you? And I'm like, Oh, okay. And he's like, it doesn't sound like it, man. Like, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, and I kind of just confided and I'm like, things are not going well. He's like, you need some help. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I kind of do. He goes, how many meetings are you going to? I'm like, none really. 
It's like, how, have you, when was the last time you did a set of steps? I'm like, uh, eight years ago. He's like, are you helping other people? No, no, not at all. I said, but what I do need is about $45,000 to pay off CRA is what I need. And he's like, I don't think that's what you need. And anyway, and we had this conversation on and off until he brought me back into the fold, so to speak. And he introduced me to somebody and I did another set of steps, but I did it now at nine years sober with real heavy circumstances in my life, you know, Um, financial ruin and all these types of things were looming. And all of a sudden, what happened was I began to build a concept of a power greater than myself that was not aligned with other people's. It was truly my own. And it began to open me up to the fact that the universe is big. I don't have any power over it. I live my life. I try to be kind to others to the best of my abilities. When I falter, I fix it. If I become of service to other people, my life gets exponentially better. And if I can just stay in this moment right here, right now, and not future forecast or doom and gloom, then things will take care of themselves. And like my sponsor asked me one question, and it was, what would you do if everything in your life was happening on time and in your best interest? Who would you treat different and how would you act different, right? So how would you act if everything in your life was happening on time and in your best interest. So if I knew that to my core, that everything was happening as it should be, my life would be devoid of fear and worry and frustration and anger because everything's happening on time and in my best interest. And that became the key that opened up the door to a concept of something bigger than me. Was that like, if, if I act as if this is good, then I don't have the negativity and the negative emotions as much anymore if that makes sense. And who would I treat different? And how, who would I treat different? Everybody. Because I don't need to be in competition with you, Derek, if everything's happening on time in my best interest. And competition with you and other men or other people is such a negative spiral for me. You know, and it's like, but then it's, you know, then, it, you know, because I, I would do it because I would be, I would be hoarding work right? I would be hoarding opportunities. I would be hoarding money. We hoard, hoard miserly, like the exact opposite of the, of the spiritual concept of generosity. I would hoard. And, and of course I lost it all because I hoarded it. But then when I started to just give, and I'm not, you know, Gandhi or anything like that, but like, you know, when I began to use that as a, as a spiritual axiom, then things began to change for me. And I actually, I talked to my sponsor. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? Just sit in coffee shops and sponsor other guys for the rest of my life. And he goes, would it be so bad? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess it could. And so I did. And every day from in year nine, I sat at the Hyatt Starbucks for like six to eight months or whatever, meeting guys, like two to three guys, like sponsees a day. And I would just work with these guys struggling to get two or three days put together. And guess what? My life got better. I don't know. So that, that's kind of a little bit of a, like a glimpse into like what my midlife sobriety crisis looked like. And as, and from that moment forward though, like it all opened up for me and that doesn't mean my life hasn't been filled with like pain, sorrow, grief, loss, excitement, travel, all like now I just live life. And, but it took me nine years and maybe I'm a slow learner, but it took me nine, 10 years to really get these heavy spiritual concepts that aren't religion they're just spiritual concepts of being generous right yeah and and then i be, i really truly feel like that was the turning point in my life i got a sponsor in my life who could speak to me i had people around me who could call me on my bullshit and then all of a sudden i was able to sort of like grow and it was all kind calling me on my bullshit it wasn't rude 
No. I, I love that, that framing of things, like everything on time in your best interest. Like, I think that that can be a, a game changer for a lot of, even just like hearing you say it, I felt mm-hmm. this like peace come over me. It's like, if, if I believe that and if I embrace it, then, yeah. you know, what, what could I do differently in my life if I didn't spend so much time agonizing over the way things should be or mm-hmm. what I could have instead of what I have in front of me? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was mind blowing for me. And, you know, we talked a little bit about acting earlier and, and we talked about the idea of who is Graham, right? And, I, <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell a quick story. And this will like, some people might think it was like off color for the person to do this, but I, I, I need to really preface this by this was done with love. So I'm sitting there with my, you know, advisor or sponsor as we call it. And I'm lamenting my acting career, right? And I was like, <clears throat> you know, and I don't know if I read this on the internet or some thing, but I said, you know, my talents are God given and my gift back to the universe is to use them. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, and I, I said it with conviction, dude, like I you believed it. I believed it. And he said, what? And he kind of started laughing and he goes, your talents, like, cause I am like funny or whatever. Right. He goes, your talents, your comedy, or whatever, right, is uh, such a defense mechanism that you used as a child who moved every two years or every six months, you used that reflex so much as a tool to pull people in or to push them away. Like I could use sarcasm to push them away, or I could use my humor and charm to pull them in. He's like, you have so used it in your entire life that it is so well used that you have monetized it. So do not be mistaken. This is not a this is not a god-given talent. This is a character defect that you have used and monetized <laughs> turned into a career. Yeah, and you've turned into a career. So there's no the universe doesn't owe you shit. The universe owes you shelter, love, food, you know, air, and hopefully some connections the friends we made along the way, right? But aside from that, really there is no guarantees. And, you know, that's the deal. And I, I, dude, like I, I left his house that day. I stormed down the street, right? I was tell me what to do, right? I was so mad. And then, but here we are again, 10 years later. And I tell yeah. the story because it's true. <laughs> it stuck with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you raised a good point about how for a lot of people, you know, I'm active in this um, sobriety community on on Instagram, and I see a lot mm-hmm. of people posting about sobriety there. And and I think a lot of people have this tendency when they sober up to believe that like, okay, I'm sober now, I'm ready for my life to just magically get better and everything to improve and no bad shit's going to happen to me anymore. And, you know, that, unfortunately, is not life. Like, that's not we don't get a reward. I mean, the reward we get for being sober is... And there are a lot of them, but it isn't just an across the board improvement of your life and a guarantee that nothing tragic or sad or awful will never happen to you again. Um, And I think that's a really, really important thing to, to keep in mind. um, Well, they even, it's it's interesting because, you know, and I I know you have a, a wide swath of people who listen to this, who are not necessarily in the program or whatever, but you know, Bill wrote the, the big book in 1938 or whatever. And then in 1947, he wrote a book called The 12 and 12, which is a nut, like it's an addendum to the big book, right? And it's almost like nine years later, he wrote that book to say, hey, just so you guys know, it's still kind of weird. 
know, like it's not like, yeah, it's gotten better, but we've actually began to learn more about ourselves that is much more revealing. And if there's, you know, if there is any um, logic to the mental health component around drinking, it's that at 10 years sober, we're still a little bit crazy. Right. And if you think about my timeline in around nine, 10 years is when like I, like I was an alcoholic with no alcohol for a decade, trying my best to claw my way through the universe with this infantile concept of God and spirituality or whatever. And, and, you know, like, I do want to say I am pretty much an atheist Buddhist now, but I just kind of like, I just know what I don't know. And what I don't know is like, you know, how the universe works. <laughs> yeah. Business, right? Which is so like, yeah. You know? And so, yeah, it's it, Russell Brand says it too. It's like, so let me get this straight. You've got a maximum of 80 years on the entire timeline of humanity. And you think, you know, if there's a God or not, <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happens. You know, maybe like the, 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 the big chapter gets revealed after I leave this earth. I don't know. Right. So it's like, uh, I don't know. So, but yeah, it's interesting that they did go out of their way to kind of say like, hey, you know, there's more to be done. There's life. If we fall off the beam, we get back up again because we are going to know grief and we are going to know loss and we are going to know pain. But what it has given me the opportunity to do is to live. And I, I know I shared this with you the last time we spoke, but, you know, I always think about this moment with uh, with my friend Kana when we were sitting in a, mo- a meeting together on Kauai and we're sitting in this beach park at uh, Poipu. And he's this big, huge tattooed dude. And what I loved about him was he was another he was another atheist in AA, right? And when you go to AA meetings in the United States, you're going to get a lot of people who are of faith and stuff like that. And that's fine. You're, you know, they're Christian or whatever. But we also know that AA, although its origins were in um, Christianity, because, there, you know, there wasn't a big buffet of religion going around the eastern seaboard of the United States in 1938, right? Like these guys were either Jewish or Christian, right? Um but thank goodness there was a whole bunch of atheists inside the group who were like, hey, you know, like go easy on the God stuff, right? And so me and Connor are sitting there and there's a couple of guys sort of like spouting off very religious stuff, which is like kind of a no-no in AA meetings, right? And so we would make sure that we steered the direction of the meeting back into like, and way, the way Connor said it was, I want to hold that hoop so wide that anybody can jump through it. You know, that anybody can find at least some peace of mind in this meeting that they belong here. And if we start putting up all these religious like subterfuge, it's going to keep people out. And we need to pull that hoop wide open and let anybody jump through it. And then as he went on that day, I remember it was his last day in Kauai. And so he was like looking out over the ocean. I could see a tear pouring down the side of his face. And he said, you know, I don't know a lot. And he's like, he was like 22 years sober or something. He's like, I don't know a lot. I just know that I want to live today. And that hit me, man. It's like, I don't know. Some days I don't know why I stay sober, but at the end of the day, I just know I want to live today. And that doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to die from alcoholism. It just means that the quality of the life that I get to live is going to be less. Because now I feel it. I feel it when I hurt someone's feelings. I feel it when they hurt mine. I feel it when I'm happy. I feel it when I'm sad. I feel every single thing because I'm no longer numb. And there is not a a drug or a sneaker or a a plate of food or any of these other addictions that that will ever take that away anymore. You know, it's all there. I'm just very raw and feeling it, you know? That is a, a beautiful sentiment. And it is truly one of the most beautiful things about sobriety, I think, is that 
it feels like a blessing and a curse sometimes, but we do get to feel everything. Mm-hmm. And I mean everything. And we I'm I'm still feeling shit from like 20 years ago that you know I never dealt with and yeah. and it'll just come over me like a wave. So that's part of the process as well. But like we get to feel you you don't just get to numb out and put a a veil over yourself for the rest of your life and yeah. and i firmly believe that that does make life a little more worth living yeah and that's and yeah i mean i've cried at sunsets you know i've 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 seen green sand beaches i've you know i've traveled the world i've done all these and i know people do that when they're so, when they drink like lots of people do it i just didn't <laughs> My life was a, a tiny little microcosm of nothing. I woke up in a West End apartment, a bachelor suite in the West End, with two cats, a cat box full of shit, a bunch of empties on the countertop. Uh, I had cocaine hidden from myself throughout like the apartment. You know, I, I would make my way to the bar where I worked, and then I would drink after the bar, and I would go home, and then I would crawl out of bed, and I would do it all over again. And that's my 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 life was ten square city blocks. You know, and I had arrived in my mind, you know, and I sat on the bar stool talking about who I was going to be. You know, I'm going to, I'm this actor, I'm this thing, I'm this, I didn't book anything. I didn't have anything, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything took off afterwards. Once, once I put that thing away, but other people I know have wicked awesome careers and are absolute shit shows. They could literally be sitting in, I know a guy who could literally be sitting in an SRO in the downtown East side and the transportation would come pick him up and take him to set. And I watched him and I was like, I was so mad, right? I'm like, but I'm sober. And it's like, well, he's a good actor like and he's, it's not your life, man. Yeah. And so the universe has given me all these lessons over the years. It's like, stop comparing yourself. You know, this is the life you get. You know, so live it. You know, that's funny. As you're saying this, I'm like, oh, 19 years sober, five years sober. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Doing the comparison thing, but uh, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. May may your recovery be <laughs> be more more plentiful and fruitful <laughs> than my own, man. I, I am like the slowest learner in all the rooms. I think sometimes, you know. Yeah, but, but you learned, right? And that's what counts. It's brought you to where you are today. Yeah. So that was early sobriety. That was mid sobriety. What's what does late stage sobriety look like to, to you? And, and how do you spend your time now? How do you feel about yourself now? Mm-hmm. How do you work on yourself now? What's, uh, you know, for, for everyone listening to this, who's looking at that long ass tunnel to get to 19 years, what do we have to look forward to? So I, th- I think I, I began to find, you know, I began to find things in my life that worked for me, whether they were, career choices or the type of work that I did or, um, you know, and, and, and that became very beneficial. I was, I was able to go and work in capacities that I enjoyed. And that sort of began to make me feel confident. And, and, and then I began to see that some of the things that I learned in recovery became transferable skills that I could not just pass on in the rooms of AA, but uh, they made me a better actor or, a better teacher or a better corporate trainer or these types of things. And I began to be able to, um, you know, there's a, there's a line in the, in the book that says, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And so I realized that this curse, there was this 12 years of chaos and stuff like that. And then all these years of learning and sobriety, I began to realize that those were actually the things that I could pass on to other people in transferable ways. And so 
there's that. And then, you know, there's another part of, of, of some literature that I read that's AA literature where it said, our shelves are lined with spiritual books. And, you know, and even if you look at Russell Brand and all these more high profile sober people, it's about continuing to seek. In step 11, it says sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. It doesn't say seeked, you know, it's not a past tense, it's sought. And so sought is, is ongoing. And so I sought through prayer and meditation. I sought through readings. Meditation can be reading, you know, and prayer can be asking and spending that time to be in touch with myself and to grow and to work with others. And so my, my sobriety today is very, it's not at all tenuous. Like it's not, it doesn't feel fragile. It feels like I'm on bedrock, but I look for opportunities to be helpful to others. I, you know, people, I have been open about my recovery. People will message me on social media and ask me to meet them for a coffee or help them or whatever. And I'll always say yes. And I'll always just sit down with them because I, I honestly feel that my life today is not devoid of problems. I have lost friends in recovery. I've lost friends all over the place. I've lost career or job opportunities, like things of, you know, up and down, blah, 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 life, right? But my life today is not sitting inside of this pendulum swing. It's more calm. And so I believe I was given a second opportunity to live life. I got sober at 27. I'm, I'm 46 now, you know, I got to, I got all of this great time in there to really live and experience and grab onto life. And I don't know how long life lasts. And that's another thing I've learned in recovery is that people die and pe- good people die and people don't die of necessarily alcoholism although they do some people get some people are in car crashes and a good friend of mine died that way my friend who my friend who walked into that meeting that day jason he looked at me and he said i don't think you're doing okay he was somebody i tried to help get sober so many times and then he finally got sober and then he died at year four in a car accident jesus yeah and like and i I never like we 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 had just spoken to each other two days earlier or three days earlier about like dumb shit, but I made him laugh. I remember that, and, you know, my superpower and um and but we should have just gotten old together in the program, or you know just two sober guys, and instead that happened, you know it didn't happen to me. It happened to Jason. It happened to his family. But for me, it was like it was the biggest loss I had felt in recovery. And then, you know, a number of years later, a friend of mine who never, never, ever would go to the rooms, although I did find out he ended up in, in Betty Ford, but he, um, he took his own life with, with pills. Uh, and it was because he couldn't, he couldn't get around his addiction. I'm sure that was part of it. And so I've learned that, like, I feel like, I don't feel like I'm on borrowed time, but I feel like I owe the universe a tremendous debt and the least I can do is try to pay it back. So that's kind of what my, and the thing is like, not, it's not like sober people or people trying to get sober aren't knocking on my door every single day. I mean, this is like literally, I, you know, I can help somebody when they show up or when they message me or when I find somebody in pain or whatever. It's not like, it's not like that's, you know, it's like this endless debt that I'm paying back. And it's a gift that I get an opportunity to it. Cause here's the thing at the end of my drinking, people didn't want me in their house let alone to sit down with me and say, Graham, can I confide in you my deepest fears? And so what a huge gift that is for me, a person who was addicted to cocaine and alcohol who bottomed out in a West End bachelor apartment with a cat box full of shit. 
that people now are asking me like, Hey man, is this normal? So that's kind of what now looks like. And the thing is, I'm not at Zoom meetings every day. I'm not doing the steps every day. I'm not reading the big book every day. But the thing is that that the foundation that I put in, in year 10, that bottom, when I hit that bottom, that has like, it was like, it was honestly like a second like spiritual awakening. And it just has given me the gas to live now. I Ever since that moment, I never really fell back into like, woe is me, I should drink. Instead, it was just more like, wow, this, I've, got, I've hit a bad set of circumstances right now. I can get past this. I don't know. So that's what it today looks like. And a lot of it's like me hanging out with, you know, my cats and my wife and, uh, you know, working on our podcast, <laughs> you know, like trying to bang out some work here and there. And Just tr- normal life stuff when you're not uh, saving lives. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, normal life stuff. And, it's, I, and I love it, man, because it's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful and it's boring. And I, and I didn't miss a thing. I didn't miss a thing. Here's the thing is everything was happening on time and in my best interest. I didn't miss a thing, you know, because I wasn't supposed to be there. You know, that wicked, you know, what, like that wicked party or that wicked nightclub that just, or that, that new, you know, like I've never had a Bud Light Lime. Like, am I missing out? I don't know. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't think you are, but um, I'm not the expert either. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Right. It came out while I was sober. <laughs> I was sitting there watching the Bud Light Lime commercial. I'm like, shit, I should go back to drinking. I should ruin my life for a Bud Light Lime. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think oh. that misstep for the ages. It's uh, yeah. all that for a Bud Light Lime. Yeah. Cocaine now in raspberry. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing, man. It is really inspiring. And it does fill me with hope to see you definitely seem like a guy who loves life, loves sobriety, loves helping people, loves spreading his message to others. So mm-hmm. it's really encouraging to, to me. And there's definitely been some lessons I've picked up from you through this that I look forward to, to putting into my own life. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. I'm going to ask our wrap up question. And I feel like based on your initial response to this, there might not be too much more to expound on here. But if you could go back, and maybe it doesn't have to be about what a man is, but if you could go back and tell a younger version of yourself something about what your future looks like or what it means to be a man or how you end up, what would you say to him? Honestly, if I could go back, in, in therapy and in some work, I found that there were two clear moments and um, and i've shared with other people that they had similar experiences but mine was age seven when we started the move and then age 15 when i began to exert myself into my autonomy right and began to become right and i think that in my life <clears throat> i've actually been trying to please a seven-year-old and a 15-year-old those are whatever inner child whatever you want to call it right and um and the thing is, like, I mean, that in itself is problematic that that I, a grown man, am, uh, you know, changing my life and making decisions based on the ghost of a 15-year-old, right? Um, but anyway, I wish I could go back to 15-year-old me or 7-year-old me, but probably 15-year-old me, and just tell him that your friends... <laughs> It's going to be so brutal. Your friends aren't as important as you think they are. They friends are important. Your current friends, your current desire to be loved and to be liked, is not going to be solved today with these people. 
you know, you are, I don't know, you're not, you are enough, but stop it. Cut the shit. Stop people pleasing. Stop being so goddamn insecure. You're going to be fine. You're super talented. Now get in there and like own this life, you know, but it's like, I was just so worried all the time about what people thought of me. And I was so worried all the time. And, and that's why I just, I ran with the crew when I found a crew and I just, I wish that that kid could have pumped the brakes and realized who he actually was and who he actually was, was a pretty special, smart, intelligent, funny kid who could um, achieve anything he wanted to, but instead allowed his shine to disappear for the approval of others. And I just, you know, if there's one regret in life and I don't have many, it's just that I wish that, that at that turning point that that young man could have, uh, could have made a different decision. Yeah. You know, unfortunately the, the shitty thing about 15 year olds and, and I was one at 1.2 is that we don't have that foresight or we don't, all we have is that desire to be accepted or welcomed. Mm -hmm. My parents told me, they told me everything I just said, but I didn't listen. Right. Yeah. Like, no, I'm going to exert my autonomy now. Right. With that literally like a non fully formed brain. And I'm you know, like this scientifically proven that my brain has not formed yet. Right. And I'm like, I'm making decisions. Right. I'm in charge of me. Right. And then like 27 years old, I'm like, oh, my name's Graham and I'm colic. Right. It's like, well, thanks, 15 year old man. <laughs> but, you know, I've nurtured that kid, though, and I do want to make him happy and I do want him to like, you know, be proud of where we're at. Um, and I think he is. You know? Yeah, I, I think he is, too. Yeah. Awesome. Graham, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story with us. If people want to connect with you or, or learn more about you, is there a place online they can go to do that? Right now, the, the big thing that I could say is if, if you, I, I, I took it, you know, after the pandemic uh, or after it's not over guys. Um, but during, <laughs> during the pandemic, there was a big pivot and my partner and I decided that we wanted to produce this podcast called true North, true crime and true North, true crime is, um, a victim centered podcast that focuses on Canadian crimes. And it's sort of taken on a whole life of its own because we promise to be victim centered. We're not looking to glorify crime by any means, as much as we're looking to, um, give a voice to crimes that have fallen out of the wayside or fallen out of the media spotlight. And more importantly, it's become a place for us to um, work with victims' families to help find missing people by telling their stories. And so, you know, this is another one of those aspects of um, finding service outside of the rooms is that now, you know, I spend, you know, uh, time speaking to victims' families and asking them about their loved one who's missing and to tell me about their childhood and their upbringing and where they're at today. And I can do that, especially if there's, you know, drug use inside that person's story, I can, um, and crime and that kind of thing. And I can do it from a non-judgmental place because this is who I am today and I understand addiction. And um, so if you want, uh, you know, True North True Crime is, is our podcast, give it a listen. Um, we, we focus on Canadian crimes and we try and help people. I love that, man. And it truly is a fantastic podcast. So if you're listening to this one, go check out True North True Crime next. Graham, thank you again so much for joining us, man. And to all our listeners, we will see you next time. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Bribriety. Reminder to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's a guest you'd like to hear from, email us at bribriety.podcast@gmail.com or message us at van underscore sober on Instagram. 
We'll see you next time.